Our sermon this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 6. So if you would grab your Bible and turn there with me, uh, we'll start by reading our one verse that comes right in the middle of this discourse on faith. So Hebrews 11, verse 6, hear the word of our God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning singing your praises, praying to you, eager to hear your word, believing that you do exist. You are real. In fact, you are with us. Even more, our our faith goes farther this morning, reaching up. We believe that you reward those who seek you. And so we seek you now, expecting that you will meet us and give us what we need. You will reward our faith. And so as we look into your word, we pray, help us. Give us faith so that we might believe that you exist and that you will reward us when we seek you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So last Sunday, we, we started our series on the attributes of God, and each week we're going to center our study on a sentence, a three-word sentence. We're going to say, God is this. And we're going to repeat that sentence, changing out the third word of that sentence again and again. We're going to say God is incomprehensible, or God is infinite, or God is merciful. But before we can get to that third word and switch it out, we need to first establish and think through the the first two words of that sentence, God is. And so our first order of business is to establish the existence of God. And so the truth of God's existence is unavoidable and inescapable. We live in a a God-saturated, God-filled world. Every direction you look, whether you're looking up or down, left or right, inside or outside, everything speaks of God's existence. Everything, all things we can say, give testimony to the God who exists. And so we need to establish God's existence. And so we'll just start off this morning by listening to to three witnesses give their testimony of God's existence. And so we can start with the natural wonders of the world. And so we are literally subsumed by the things that God has made. Above us are skies that God has made, and, and further above the skies are the vast heavens full of stars and planets. Below them and near to us are our mountains and valleys and plains and hills, all of them filled with all sorts of things, rivers and and trees and lakes and and living things, animals, and all sorts of, of plants of every kind. And then there is which is below us. So there are things above us to our sides and below us. There are the depths of the oceans and there are the bowels of the earth. And all of these wonders, every single one of them, are faithful to the God who is, and so speak of him and his greatness and his glory. They never stop giving their testimony. They do their work every day. Psalm 19 puts it like this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. Their voice goes through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That's what creation does. It speaks of God again and again and again. And if we're careful enough to slow down, to pause and listen, we should hear of the God who exists, and we should know that God exists. Augustine, a, a theologian of the early church, urges us to go to creation and to inquire of it, and then to listen to it and what it says. He, he writes in one of his sermons this. He says, Ask the universe, the adornment of the heavens, the brilliance and the arrangement of the stars, the sun, the sufficiency of the day, the moon, the solace of the night. Ask the earth bearing fruit and herbs and trees filled with animals adorned with men. Ask the sea full of such great and varied aquatic creatures. Ask the air flourishing with such great flying creatures. Ask all things if they do not in their own sense, as it were to respond to you, God made us. God made us. You have to love that. What does this old theologian want us to do? He wants us to go to creation and so knock on the tree and ask, what do you say? What is your testimony? And if we had ears to listen to trees, they would say, God made me. God made me. And so all things, all natural things give testimony to God. And so we can listen to a a second testimony, a second witness. And so after the natural wonders of the world, we can turn inward to ourselves. So even if you were able to to shut your eyes and stop up your ears, if you were able to, to lock yourself in a closet for your whole life, not being able to see anything else that God has made, you would not be able to escape the testimony of God's existence. Why? Because God made us. And because God made us, every faculty of our constitution testifies to God. Our longings, for example, are never satisfied with the things that we have. Our souls are always reaching upwards, stretching out for something more. We want something lasting, something durable, something that will actually satisfy us. And so we reach and we reach and we reach. Or another example, our, our consciences. We have this little voice in our head, and when we do wrong, our conscience then troubles us. And what is our conscience doing when it troubles us? It is alerting us to the fact that there is someone who sees what we do. There is someone who is taking account of of what we have done, and that person will indeed judge us. And this is true for our intellects as well. We are always driven to to search out the meaning of things. We're going deeper, trying to figure out. We're asking questions like why or or how or for what reason. And what has God done? He has planted in us these questions because he has created us to, to search out the meaning of things. And he has done this so that we might indeed seek him as the answer of all things. And so there is testimony of God's existence everywhere in the things that we can see with our eyes and the things we can touch with our hands, even if we look inward unto ourselves, our own created constitution gives evidence that God exists. And this brings us to the third witness. And this is the most important witness, one we cannot neglect because it is God himself. You see, God is no distant spectator in the affairs of our worlds. 
He does not stand aloof, just far away in the heavens. He is the sovereign creator. He rules and he directs all things, big things, small things, significant things, insignificant things. He rules over all things like Psalm 103 says. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. And he doesn't just rule over all. He is a God who draws near to those whom he rules. And he reveals himself in remarkable and surprising ways. Do you remember the burning bush? There Moses encounters the Lord. The Lord comes to him and speaks out of the bush saying, I am who I am. Or do you remember Mount Sinai? The the Lord came down upon the top of that mountain. And there he thundered and roared before the congregation of Israel. And they all trembled. God appeared to men and he did this throughout history. He in a vision spoke to Abraham. In the night, he wrestled with Jacob. Face to face, he spoke with Moses again and again. With chariots of fire, he he took and drew up Elijah into heavenly places. In the days of Joshua, he came and he made the sun stand still. In the temple, he came and he revealed himself to Isaiah. And with many and many saints, he walked with them. He walked with Enoch and Noah and Abraham and a list of many other men that we cannot count. But this God does not just draw near to creation. He rules over creation. He draws near to creation. He, in a stunning fact, takes creation unto himself. In the most stunning act, the Son of God becomes incarnate. He was born of a virgin, or as John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And so throughout Jesus' ministry, the, the truth was proclaimed in everything he did. Emmanuel, God, is with us. And the result of Jesus' ministry was this, John 1.14 again. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this means something. As Jesus preaches, John 14.9, whoever has seen me has then seen the Father. And so there's the truth. All things, sky, trees, lakes, fish, bird, your conscience, God's work and words, God's son bear witness to the truth. God exists. And here is the reality. No one can hide from that truth. No one can shut it out. Every day, better said, every moment of every day, the truth of God's existence assaults all of our senses and faculties. The only thing we can do, if we don't accept it, is reject it. We can only try to suppress the truth, but when we do this, we actually deny our own created reality. We deny ourself, our conscience, our intellect, our soul, and we do this to our own trouble. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 gives us a sad commentary on our understanding of God and what we do with his existence. Paul writes, Romans 1, 21 through 23, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what is Paul telling us? He's saying, God exists, don't you know it? And he exists even if sinful men say, no, he doesn't. And so that's a very long sermon introduction. And I want to set us up now in light of all of that with a question. 
So we see this truth. God exists. We have these witnesses. They're coming to us. They're speaking to us. Nature is speaking to us. Our own created constitution is speaking to us. God himself is speaking to us. And the question is this. What do we do with this God who exists? God exists, so what then for us? And the answer to that question is not a difficult answer. It comes in many different ways, in many different forms, but the short of it is this. You must seek the God who exists. You must seek him. And, and we find this call given throughout the scriptures. The scriptures are a book that call us to seek the God who exists. For example, Moses summons us to God. We've heard these words so many times, Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And, and what is Moses doing? He is summoning us to this God. Or the prophet Isaiah, he does this as well. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What is Isaiah doing? He's summoning us to the God who exists. And this call is in the New Testament as well. And in the New Testament, it becomes more urgent. It becomes more clear. It becomes more sharp. Remember Jesus, he, he shows up and he begins his ministry with these words, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is Jesus doing? He is summoning us to the God who exists. And that was the theme of his ministry. Throughout it, he urged people, he beckoned people, come to the God who exists. Jesus preached, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. What did Jesus do? He offered himself again and again, urging people to come to him. John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the call is clear and distinct. What is your duty? Your duty is to seek the God who exists. But this raises another question. Well, how do I do that? God exists. We have these witnesses. They're speaking to us. My duty is to seek him. But how do I begin to, to seek him? How do I begin to commune with him? How do I begin to know him and have him as my God? What does that look like for me? I want to give you a few answers from the book of Hebrews. And so the book of Hebrews is a book that is concerned about seeking God. For example, chapter 4, verse 16, the author says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the help, in help in the time of need. Or, or chapter 10, verse 22, the, the author says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. But what is the author of Hebrews doing? He is beckoning us to God with, with forceful commands. He is saying this, dear reader, go to God. He, he is preaching, don't hold yourself back from God. You've been washed with the blood of Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been cleansed with pure water. Now make your way to God. Draw near to him, he preaches to us. And that's the message we need to hear. And while that sounds very persuasive as you listen to this book of scripture, we, we still ask, well, how, how do I go about doing that? How do I draw near? How do I seek this God who exists? 
And what the author of Hebrews does in Hebrews 11, verse 6, is he gives us two clear, distinct directions. And they are these. The first direction he gives is this. If you want to draw near to God, you must first believe that he exists. And secondly, you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. And I just want to spend the rest of our time thinking through those two directions and what they mean for us in our seeking of God. So let's take a look at that first direction. If, if you want to draw near to God, you must do this. You must believe that God exists. Just sit on that for a moment. <laughs> Setting you up with these questions and that direction probably seems a bit underwhelming to you. Being perfectly honest, we might say this morning, that sounds a bit too basic for me. It sounds a bit law, we might be tempted to say, can't you give me something better than that, author of Hebrews? But we need to hang in here and think hard about these words because there's good reason for this direction. Let me put it like this. If you don't believe that God exists, then you as a result won't seek him out. Why? Because we don't search for things or, or people that we believe don't exist. For example, think about your, your backyard. If you are fully persuaded that there is no gold buried in your backyard, what is the result of that belief? Well, you're never going to take a shovel and dig up your whole backyard. Why? Because you don't think there is gold back there. But if you thought there was gold back there, what would you do? If you were fully persuaded that there was treasure in your backyard, you would get out a shovel and you would spend all afternoon and the rest of the week digging for it. And so we need to be persuaded that God exists, otherwise we will never seek him. But there's more for us here in this direction. Because if we let this direction just sit with us, the direction begins to work on us and begins to, to sift us with all sorts of questions. This direction asks us, how aware are you of God's existence? Or more personally, how often do you think about God throughout your day? Are you conscious of his presence? Does your mind ever fix upon him and his attributes like his holy or holiness or his glory or his majesty or his power or his might? Did you ever think about him like that? This direction asks, is God just a belief to you? You've got this theological truth in your mind. You check it off. Yes, I believe God exists and that's all it is for you. Or is God a real person, a living being? And if we let this sift us, I think it reveals something about us. I think many of our problems and many of our dysfunctions go back to this very basic issue. Let me put it like this. Why do we have trouble putting to death that habitual sin that just, just troubles us again and again and again? There's that sin that we just keep doing. Why do we get so consumed in the matters of today, like money and cars and wealth and sports? And why do we have so little concern for things of eternal importance, like, like judgment and hell and the new heavens and the new earth? Why are we often so lazy and sleepy and dull in our spiritual disciplines, like, like praying or reading scripture or, or listening to sermons? Why is it that we're so often filled with trouble and anxiety? Why do we often find so little delight and love to God? And I think at root is this direction. What foils us and trips us is that we really don't believe that God exists. 
And so from this first direction in verse 6, the author writes, for whoever would draw near to God must first believe that he exists. I want to give you, you two applications this morning. And so the first application is this. If you want to really seek God, you must tear out atheism from your heart. You have to tear out atheism from your heart. And what I mean here doesn't have anything to do with with Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or any other, the the famous atheists who go about on on YouTube or TV denying God's existence. This application is about normal, everyday stuff. You need to tear out atheism from your heart. So Stephen Charnock, he's a Puritan. He wrote a massive book called The Existence and Attributes of God, and we're going to be using this book throughout this sermon series. Brings this home for us. He, He writes this. And just stick with me in this quote. He says, There is something of a a secret atheism in all, which is the fountain of the evil practices in their lives. Not an utter disowning of the being of God, but a denial or the doubting of some of the rights of his nature. And So that's a quote, and you might not be able to digest all of it, so just chew on it with me. So Charnock is speaking of this, this secret atheism. And so he's saying this isn't a wholesale denial of God. Like you just take God and you, you throw him out the window and say, I'm just done with God. No, he's saying this is something more subtle at work in the lives of people. This is something that no one might know about you. Maybe you don't even know it about yourself. But in this secret atheism, what you do is you exclude certain attributes of God from your daily living. And so he says, it is not an utter disowning of the being of God but a denial or the doubting of some of his rights of his nature. So how might that work? Let me give you a couple examples. We'll start with something really mundane, something that you have probably experienced before. And so in this example, you wake up in the morning, and instead of devoting some time to the Word of God, reading it, and to seeking God in prayer, communing with Him, you instead pull out your phone, and you begin to search from site to site, scrolling through, and you begin to fritter away your time, and all of a sudden, you look at the the clock on top of your phone, and you say, oh, I gotta go, and so you rush off to the thing you need to do, whether it's work or, or somewhere else, and you haven't prayed, you haven't read a single word from God that morning. And so thinking through, Charnock, what is the issue here, according to him? Well, we might be tempted to say the issue here is time management. Maybe you need to learn how to manage your time better. Maybe it's a a phone addiction and you need to learn how to set down your phone. And and those are certainly factors and and would be worthwhile to think about. But according to Charnock, the issue is more serious here. And so according to Charnock, it's, it's this. And we just need to work it through. There is a God, and this God speaks, and he speaks to his people because he desires to feed his people with his word. And what you have done that morning, frittering away all of your time, looking at your phone, is you have denied this God who speaks, and you have forgotten, or maybe even worse, you have denied your need of him and his word. And so what is, what is the root issue here? Well, according to Charnock, it is this secret atheism at work. What are we doing? We're not just addicted to our phones. We're denying God. There is this secret atheism at work. Or maybe another example, this one darker. And so you're off by yourself. No one 
is around. No one is looking. There's no one to hold you accountable for what you are going to do. And to be quite frank, no one will ever know what you have done. And so you indulge that temptation off by yourself. And we ask, well, what's the issue here? Maybe we could say the issue is secrecy. You shouldn't be by yourself that much. Or maybe the issue is internet access. You shouldn't have unfettered access to the internet and all that's on there. And again, those are factors. But according to Sharnock, the issue is deeper and more troubling. What have you done? Well, you have denied the the omnipresence and omniscience of God. You have said in your sin, God doesn't see me. God doesn't know me. God isn't here with me. And it goes deeper. You have denied the sufficiency of God in that act. You have said, God can't meet my needs. He can't satisfy me or keep me from my sin. You have denied the righteousness of God. You have said, God won't hold me account for what I do. I am in secret. I can do as I please. And you've denied the will of God. You have said, my will is right, and I will live according to my will, and I will do my own will. And so what is the problem there? Well, it's the secret atheism. What are we doing? We're excluding some part, some being of God and setting him aside from us. What is the issue so often in our sin? It's that we forget or we deny that God exists. And so what must we do? but we need to tear atheism out of our hearts. Think of the gardener. The gardener goes out to the garden and there are are weeds in the garden. Does the gardener go to that weed and just pluck off the leaves of the weeds and then walk away saying job is done? No, because if the gardener does that, the gardener will come back the next day and the same weed will be there and the, the, the weed will grow the leaves back again. No, a good gardener goes, he sees the weed and what does he do? He plucks the whole thing out down to the root. The whole plant comes out and this is what we need to do with our sin. We just don't deal with actions. We need to get down to the secret atheism, this, this matter of soul where we're denying the existence of God in some way or another. We need to expel it. And this brings us to the the second application. We need to then wake up to God. And this application builds off the first application because it's not enough to tear out atheism from our hearts. That's not not enough to to fix us. Something has to replace that that God-denying. Something must shine into the darkness and that what must shine into the darkness is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, how do we do this? Well, we get this knowledge in its most potent form, its most concentrated form in the Word of God. You want to know God, you want to put to death sin, you need to encounter God. And in the Bible, we encounter God. What does the Bible do? It rouses us from our sleepiness and our ignorance and our secret atheism because in the Bible, we see God. We see God in his power in the Bible. We see him conquering Egyptians and and routing Philistine armies and and raising his son from the dead. We see God in his holiness. We see him striking down Israelites for looking upon the ark of God. We see Isaiah stunned and and speechless saying, woe is me when he sees the holiness of God. We, We hear the cries of the angels singing out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we see God in his mercy. We see him dealing ever so patiently with Israel. In fact, ever so patiently with us in our sins. 
We see God in his tremendous love for sinners, giving his son away to mockery and torture and death. What happens when we read our Bibles? We see God, and the Bible wakes us up to the God who really does exist. And so if we want to follow this direction, if we really want to draw near to God, we need to be a people who ingest the Bible. We need to read the Bible straight up, no dilution. We need to read the Bible in articles and in books. We, we need it preached into our ears and we need it preached down into our souls and into our hearts. We need to talk of the Bible and sing of the Bible. We need to memorize the Bible so that the Bible is always near us so it might wake us up from our spiritual slumber. We need to ingest the Bible if we are to wake up to God and so believe that he actually does exist. And so that's the first direction. Do you want to draw near to God? Do you want to seek God? You must believe. You must believe that he really does exist. And the author of Hebrews gives us a second direction to add to that. He tells us if we want to draw near to God, we must believe that he rewards those who draw near to him. He rewards those. And so this direction is not difficult to understand because we operate by this direction every day of our life. We don't go to parties we're not invited to. We don't walk through doors that say with big signs on them, no access. We don't drive down streets that have the big red sign that's saying wrong way or do not enter. We don't go into stores that have the big red neon flashing sign saying close. We don't go where we're not welcomed. We stay away. And so if we're to seek God, we must know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will indeed welcome us. He will indeed take us in, that he will indeed, as the author of Hebrews says, reward those who seek him. And what the author of Hebrews does is he assures us, even in this verse, that this God will indeed welcome all who seek him in the name of his son, Jesus. And this direction, too, is worthwhile to ponder and think about. Because while it's so basic, we, we understand it so clearly intellectually, this too is an issue that foils and trips us up. So think about it like this. What keeps us from drawing near to God so often? Well, we have these, these, these bad ideas of God planted in our souls. For some reason, we, we, we eye God with suspicion thinking that he's cold, that he's disinterested in us. We, we picture him as a father distant from us, far away and, and unconcerned of our lives and what we're doing. Sometimes we even picture our father angry with us as if he would want to smite us or destroy us. And so what do we do? We, we stay away from him. We stay away from him. But brothers and sisters, that's not what we have learned in the gospel no, when we come to the Father in the name of Jesus, we come to the one who promises to always reward us. We come to the Father with our, our sins and he, he promises to forgive us and to cleanse us. We come to him with our, our needy prayers again and again and he promises to hear us and as a good father, give us exactly what we need. When we come worn and tired out and weary, he promises to give us comfort and rest. When we come with all of our temptations, and we have so many of them. He, he gives us help. He gives us help. And so if we want to draw near to God, we must believe that he will reward us. That he will reward us for coming to him with faith. And so how do we put this direction to work in our lives? 
How do we grow in this knowledge, this, this faith of believing that God will reward us? Well, we must grow in this by sinking our teeth into the promises that the Bible gives us. You really want to seek God? You must be a man, you must be a woman who lives on the promises of God, like 1 John 1, 9. What are you going to do with all of your sins? Or are you going to keep them to yourself unless you believe this? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're going to be a person who draws near to God, seeking his presence and his nearness, you won't do it unless James 4.8 is in you and you believe it and you know it. Draw near to God, James says, and he gives us a promise, and he will draw near to you. You're not going to go to God seeking him for everything you need unless you believe Philippians 4.19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And you're not going to live upon God unless you're assured that he is actually for you all the way. Like Romans 8, 38 and 39, where Paul sings to us, he says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see how this works? If we really want to be a people who seek God, we need to believe that he is a God who rewards all of those who seek him in his son with faith. And we need to then take the promises of God and plant them in our souls. Because if we don't have the promises of God, we have nothing. And so the call then is to take these promises and plant them in your soul that you might make your way to God. And so we can conclude with this. God exists, brothers and sisters. The truth is evident. It's in nature. It's in you And God himself testifies of it every day in his word. What do you need to do? You need to seek him. And you need to seek him first by believing that he exists, and second, by believing that he rewards those who seek him. And so let's do that now. Oh, Father, we do seek you. We seek you in faith. We believe that you exist, that you are the only God. You are the true God. Even more, you are our God. And we come to you right now in this moment, believing you will reward our faith for coming to you. We have so many needs. You know our our secret atheism in our souls. You, You know our often negligence of the great promises that you have given us. And we pray, would you would you meet us and would you help us? Would you give us a lively knowledge that you do exist? And would you fill us with assurance and confidence that you will indeed? reward us. Make us a people who really do seek you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.